Amen. Praise God. Well, that's what we came to do is lift high the name of Jesus. I believe we just did that. So why don't you find your seats and uh, we're going to listen to him now. Uh, So we want you to open your Bibles. Why don't you open your Bibles with me to the book of Mark. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. Our ushers are coming around. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you so you can get their attention. They would love to give you one. Uh, Or you can follow along with us on the Bible app and kind of take your notes there. We are in the book of Mark chapter 14. We're going to be finishing Mark chapter 14. Guess what that means? We are getting really close to the end of this book. New year, we're nearing the end. And uh, I was looking ahead this week to where we're uh, going next in the next book. And I'm just going to keep it a surprise because uh, I'm like that, and I'm super fired up about it. But uh, we are going to be here in Mark chapter 14. Here's what we've been focusing on this year. Our, our ministry theme, the thing that we've been uh, beating the drum, this is what we want to get after is this. Love Christ, live sent. We want to be a, a worshiping and sending church. We want to be a church that's just giving passionate worship and love for Jesus. And the way that we do that, we're actually trying to pursue a, a deeper uh, relationship with Jesus. And the best way that we could do that is really through getting through in the daily disciplines. It's not just what happens on a Sunday morning and, and, and then we just kind of go about our week. We want this to be all the time, all-consuming, that we're going hard after Christ. And the way we do that is... Uh, getting into uh, the Word of God, reading our Bibles together, getting on our knees in prayer, starting to serve in His church and give to the mission and what He's trying to accomplish. It's really just saying, you're first. You're number one. We want you uh, to be our first priority. We want to love Christ. But then what we're going to focus on this morning is is living sent. And I want you to think about um, what that looks like for you. How are you going to live sent this year? I think we need to clarify here because sometimes when you think of uh, living sent, some of you are thinking like, well, that, that means i got to go on a missions trip, which, um, yeah, that would be a great way to live sent. And next week we're going to have our uh, Kuala Lumpur missions trip team up on the stage. We're going to start praying and getting ready. I'm just fired up about what God's going to do there. But even if you don't get to go on a missions trip, that doesn't mean that you just need to wait till next year to live sent. Like, listen, listen. You can live sent right here, right now, where God has you with the people that you know and the people that you have influence over. Opportunities to make disciples and to share uh, the gospel. Courageous evangelism is one of our uh, six distinctives as a church. This is what we want to get after. But uh, the question I want to ask this morning is this. What what does a faithful witness look like? What is a faithful witness? witness look like? Well, we're going to see in in Mark chapter 14, he's going to actually give us the example for us to follow, and uh, he's going to give us um, a bad example um, to not emulate. Uh, But as we jump back into this, just to kind of recap where we've been, Jesus is getting closer and closer to the cross. Um, He's celebrated the Passover with his disciples. At the end of that, he told every single one of them that they were all going to fall away which, of course, they're like, no way, it's not going to happen. Like, they're all uh, denying that that's going to take place. But then in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane that we saw last week, Jesus was undergoing intense suffering and, and really surrendering his will and obedience to the Father. And uh, that's where Judas betrayed him. And at the end of that, we saw that every single one of his disciples, all of them, left him, left him alone. 
Now Jesus has been arrested, and he's going to stand trial. So we're going to pick up with Jesus here, Mark chapter 14, standing trial. And before we get into it, this is uh, the big idea of the text. If you're taking notes, here's what we're going to find. Jesus is our example of a faithful witness. I think that's going to become pretty obvious when we read this, okay? Uh, Starting in verse 53, Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53, they said uh, they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found, how much? None. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Father, I thank you that you would send your son uh, for this purpose. And we recognize that, as we've already said and celebrated and uh, been reminded of this morning, uh, this was your plan, this was your purpose, that you had to send your son to die for us. And that it was the will of the Lord, it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. So we're, um, we're incredibly thankful that you did that in our place. And God, as we see Jesus, I, I, we want to get after this. We want, we want to be um, looking ahead and the opportunities that we might have to live sent right where we're at. And God, we're confessing to you that uh, we're not always faithful. We're not always great at this. And so... I pray that we would look to Jesus and we would see the example that you've set us and that you would make us more like your son. We want to be more like Jesus this year. And so we pray that as you speak to us now from your word, you're going to fill us with your spirit to walk in obedience to this and that you'll get the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, obviously Jesus is our example I want to give you two encouragements as we uh, try to live sent this year, okay? Uh, Here's what I think we see. Note this. Um, Jesus was the faithful witness in the face of injustice. You see that? Jesus was faithful even in the midst of injustice. I mean, this entire scene is just an egregious breach of the judicial system. There's really nothing about this that's fair. The, The setting 
Uh, Verse 53 says that they led Jesus to the high priest. Now, Mark doesn't actually tell us his name, but Matthew does. In Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 26, he tells us that the high priest's name was Caiaphas. And it seems like they're actually meeting at Caiaphas's house, his, his, his palace. And I've kind of got a map to show you this because, I, I, honestly, I found this in, incredibly helpful. There is so much that happens in the hours, the night before and the day of, leading up to Jesus on the cross. They're kind of moving him around all over the place. And so I found this a little bit helpful. Last week, we saw him arrested uh, here in the garden. Apparently, my battery has died. That's super sad. Uh, So you can see kind of in the Garden of Gethsemane, number one, and and then he comes down, they take him here. It's likely that this place in the city is the palace or the house of Caiaphas, and and then you're going to see they're going to take him over to, uh, they got to take him over to Pilate, back to Herod, back to Pilate again before they take him up to the cross. But it's here that that Mark is telling us this story at the house or at the palace of uh, the high priest, the text says, all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Now that means, uh, what he's talking about is the Sanhedrin. Remember the Sanhedrin? It was like 71 members in the Sanhedrin. It's actually the word in verse 55, the whole council or the whole Sanhedrin. That was the supreme judicial council for the Jews. I mean, these guys are really important. They're kind of limited in what they can do because Rome is real, the, the real political power. So Jesus is actually going to stand multiple trials this night, but the first one is really just going to be a religious trial. They're going to have to send him to Pilate so that he can have uh, kind of a Roman civil trial where they'll be able to sentence him to death. They're not really allowed to do that, but they're having a religious trial in the middle of the night, which is kind of interesting uh, because they're not following Jewish law when it comes to Uh, the court proceedings. You weren't actually supposed to uh, try a capital case at night, but it seems like that's what's happening here. Jesus has already celebrated the Passover with his disciples, then he went out into the Garden of Gethsemane, and here they are, and we know that because Peter and the guards are actually warming themselves by the fire. Uh, So so, so why are they holding this at night when they're not supposed to be? And you're also not supposed to be uh, having a capital case on the night of, uh, uh, before the Sabbath or during a festival, which it's Passover right now. So they're actually breaking all sorts of laws, kind of going against the legal formalities and, and just rushing this through. Because I think they're trying to hurry up and get him to Pilate in the morning because they just want him dead. But look at verse 54. I think this is interesting. Verse 54, Mark includes this little detail here. It's almost like he just needs to like, pause for just a minute. I just want to remind you of this. Peter was following him at a distance right into the courtyard. So what I think is happening here, uh, Mark is giving us another story sandwich. Remember those? Where he starts a story and then he kind of interrupts it and then comes and finishes it uh, later. And what's in the middle really helps make sense, uh, helps you understand the point of what he's trying to say here. And so, so we've got uh, Peter in the courtyard, and we're kind of left wondering what's going to happen to him. It seems kind of dangerous that he would be here, and then later he's going to pick back up with his story uh, with Peter's denial. So what's happening is that in between Peter's denial of Jesus and his failure to be a faithful witness in the courtyard, in between that, we have the story of Jesus standing trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin as 
the faithful witness. He's the example, right? That's the one we want to look to. So the text says that they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Here, I've got a picture of what the Sanhedrin would have looked like, okay? This is, this is actually what it would have looked like in the temple. We don't really know what that would have looked like in Caiaphas' house, which, again, is weird. Why are they meeting there? It just seems like they're so anxious and ready to get this guy through the system because they want to kill him. But, but you can kind of picture what this would have looked like. You've got uh, the accused standing in the middle, and half, one half of the Sanhedrin's on one side, the other half on the other, and they're standing before the high priest. This, you can almost picture then what it would have felt and looked like for Jesus to kind of be uh, surrounded, facing the high priest and surrounded by all this angry mob of religious leaders who want him dead and, and are trying to uh, find evidence to condemn him as guilty. But here's the problem. The text says, um, they found none. I mean, we got to get him with something like, nothing sticking, and that's going to be a problem when you're trying to prove a, a case with no evidence, right? And we don't really feel sorry for these guys, but there is a sense in which this is really pathetic. I mean, can you imagine how hard it must be? This is Jesus, right? You're trying to condemn a man who is quite literally innocent in every respect of the word. And they're not just trying to pin him down with, with like a lawsuit or a, a misdemeanor or a felony. They're going for the death penalty having a hard time coming up with the evidence. And so, well, here's what they do, verse 56. It says that many bore false witness against him. Now it's just kind of getting ugly because they're actually starting to break some of the Ten Commandments. God had said, Exodus chapter 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie. And not just one, but the text says that many of them are bearing false witness against them. I mean, the sad irony here is, is that they're resorting to trying to break God's law to try to kill God's son. And they're lying about him, but the practical problem is, even in that, their, their testimony, uh, it says, did not agree. Now, you don't have to be a, a judge or a lawyer and never had to sit on a jury to kind of figure out that that's going to be a problem, right? Those of you who are parents um, have experienced this. If you ever had... Uh, two kids with two versions of the same story about who hit who or who said what. And, 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 and when the two stories aren't matching up, you kind of know uh, somebody's lying here, right? I can't really trust what you're saying. But, but, but here, here they are, and God had told them, Deuteronomy chapter 17, he said, a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Because he knew, you're going to have to have two stories. We've got to have multiple witnesses, two, three, or more if we can. And they all need to agree. And they're having trouble with that. But then they start to pick up a little bit of steam with this pretty significant charge here that they, uh, they, they heard him say, I will destroy this temple and build another not made with hands. And that, that would be a kind of a serious violation. I mean, the temple's kind of important to the Jews, and so you can imagine if he says he's going to blow it up or destroy it or something, that's, they're not going to be really excited about that. And he did say something like that. He said the temple was going to be destroyed, but of course we know he was talking about his resurrected body. But it doesn't really matter because the problem still, the text says is, verse 59, even about this, their testimony did not agree. Listen, 
They've got nothing. Honest, this, this case should have just been thrown out of court. There's nothing here. But instead of throwing it out, the high priest starts to interrogate him, starts to ask him, do you have, you have anything to say? You got any response to this? I mean, you got all these accusations. What are you going to say? And I love this. The text says that he remained silent and made no answer. I mean, honestly, did he need to? If, if, if this is a fair system at all, they've, they've, they've kind of made fools out of themselves, right? Their, their case is laughable. They have nothing. Does he really need to say anything? And even if he does, they're just going to try to use it against him. So he says nothing. But Jesus' silence also fulfills prophecy, doesn't it? Isaiah 53, verse 7, you can see this here. This was prophesied hundreds of years before Christ walked the earth. It said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There's Jesus fulfilling this in complete silence while he's being lied and, and accused. But you can almost picture, um, it's almost like that, that the image of, of Jesus in, in handcuffs chained to a table in a dark interrogation room. You know what I'm talking about? Like one single lamp shining down on him. And here comes the high priest, just kind of like an angry detective who's just going to start pounding on the table to try to get him to talk. And, and, and here's what he says, verse 61. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That, listen, that's actually the question that we've been trying to get in this book, isn't it? Who is Jesus? Are you, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? That's actually Peter's confession. In, in, in Mark chapter 8, halfway through the book, when Jesus was asking Peter, yeah, but who do you say that I am? Peter finally stepped forward and got it right and said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But Caiaphas isn't just saying that, 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 that he's the Messiah. He asks Jesus if he is the Son of God. The Son of the Blessed is another name for God. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? I want you to compare that to these words here on the screen. You've seen this verse before. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is what Mark wanted to try to prove to you. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Kind of ironic that here is Caiaphas, the high priest who just wants Jesus dead, but he's the one who gets Jesus' identity right and, and actually confirms what Mark claimed and what he's been trying to prove through this whole book. He really is the Christ. And when Jesus is put on the spot and asked to confess his identity, I want you to see this because this is our example. He doesn't shrink back in fear. And now he's not going to stay silent. Even in the face of all that hatred, even in the face of this blatant injustice, Jesus boldly speaks the truth. Which is why Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, calls him Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. It's because he was willing even in the midst of all of that, 
to stand before it and declare the truth. Here's his, here's his testimony. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said these two words, I am. Man, those words just powerfully echo the name of God from the Old Testament, don't they? And, they, and really, it's just further proof of Jesus' divinity. But I want you to notice this. This is actually the first time in the book of Mark that Jesus has just come right out and publicly uh, uh, confirmed his identity in the entire book. There, there have been times where his identities kind of snuck out there. And, and, and you'll remember, he kept telling people, don't tell anybody. Don't, don't say anything. He kept giving this command to silence. I don't want you to say anything to anybody. This is the first time. There's no more command to silence. It's out there. One of the reasons I think he was holding back is because when everybody would say his identity, he wanted them to understand and not misunderstand what it meant for him to be the Christ. That the, the, the Messiah was going to have to suffer and die. And so here he is standing before these men who hate him and want to kill him him and there's no more command to silence it's right out there in the open i am and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power those words actually echo what he had said we're going to hear in the end times in mark chapter 13 at the end of chapter 13 he said then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory so, so that imagery of the Son of Man coming in the clouds actually comes from Old Testament prophecy. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 tells us that the Son of Man is going to come on the clouds to exercise dominion and authority. And then in Psalm 110, he said that the Son of Man is going to be uh, seated at the right hand of God and he is going to come and judge the nations. He's going to judge which is something only God would do. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? Not only is Jesus the faithful witness, but he is the judge. You see the ironic injustice about what's happening then? Tim Keller points out the paradox of this moment. He says, he is the judge over the entire world being judged by the world. Everything's upside down right now. But Jesus is giving them this powerful reminder that, that, that they may be putting him on trial now, but in the end, they will find themselves standing before him as their ultimate judge. He is claiming to be their creator and reminding them that they will answer to him. You think that's going to get him in trouble? At one of the most critical moments of Jesus' earthly life, he is leaving no question, no doubt about it. He is the Son of God. And so the high priest said, wow, I'm so sorry. Let, let, you know, let's take the handcuffs off and let's, let's all start worshiping him. Right? Not even close. What, what, what does he do? It says, it says that he, he tore his garment and said, what, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. That, 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 that tearing the garment was just a, a sign of outrage. Like, I can't believe I'm hearing this. He's so angry. But really, that's actually kind of hoped, what he hoped he'd say. Remember, he's trying to build a, a case on a bunch of false witnesses. And, and what's Kind of funny is that, that none of their lies in the end are even needed because it's actually Jesus' own testimony about himself that they jump on and use to condemn him. And he's not in trouble because 
He said he was going to destroy the temple, not really even because he was claiming to be the Messiah. It was deeper than that. The reason they thought this was blasphemy was because they realized he was claiming to be God. Even though, listen, think about this. He has given them and us, because we're witnesses too. We've been following along with this. He has given us so much evidence to prove that he really is the Son of God. I think about all the, the, the power that we've seen and, and the signs and the miracles and, and Jesus healing the sick and, and, and raising the dead and, and, and the calming the storms and, and the authority that he has and the authority in his teaching and how much he knows of, of God's word and, and he taught as one who had authority and all the claims that he made and all the fulfillment of prophecy and, and we've even heard the audible voice of the Father at his baptism, at his transfiguration. We heard the Father say, you are my beloved son and we see Jesus in his in his obedience to the father his his willingness to to submit and to serve and to suffer and to die we've seen his love for sinners so the question is after all you've seen who do you say Jesus is have you seen enough see these religious leaders are going to judge him as worthy of death by throwing out all the evidence. They have to. They do what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. They suppress the truth. They can't take an honest look at what God has done, what Jesus has done, what he said. And so they choose to reject him because if he is who he says he is, then they would be at his mercy as their judge, right? So the question is kind of left to us too. Who? Who is this Jesus? And I think C.S. Lewis has, has, has said it so well this way. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Who do you say? And instead of, instead of believing him, instead of falling at his feet, you just see this hatred and all of this injustice actually just starts to spiral into twisted chaos here. They start spitting him and striking him and making fun of him and mocking him. and He's received with blows. Do you think, do you think Jesus knew this was coming? He said ahead of time this was going to happen. What an example for us. That, that, that even though he, he, he knew it was going to happen, he didn't let the threat of the torture and the death and, and the abuse and the unfairness of all their hatred and their violence, he didn't let any of that keep him from proclaiming the truth. Because he is the faithful witness in the face of injustice. And Jesus, his actions are going to stand in stark contrast to Peter and his reaction, right? Let's pick back up where Peter was, verse 66. Mark's like, oh yeah, and, and, and Peter, he's below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. 
But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to uh, again to save the bystanders. This man is one of them, but again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Obviously a bad example, one that we don't want to emulate. But I do think there's some lessons. If Jesus is our example, there's still some lessons that we can learn from the experience of Peter and get some encouragement for living since. So note this. We can be faithful witnesses in the face of persecution. We can. That's the encouragement he wants to help us see this morning. Here's Peter. The text says that he was below in the courtyard. Remember, he's at the, at the house or at the palace. He's down in the courtyard. And, and let's at least give Peter credit for being there. Like, he's following Jesus. He's trying. Uh, but if he's down below, then that means that Jesus is up in a room. Jesus is facing and surrounded by a packed room of powerful men who want to kill him. And Peter's facing a servant girl. The odds are just a little bit different, wouldn't you say? And apparently in the firelight, she kind of recognized him and put him on the spot. And uh, so uh, Peter has a choice. Because if he identifies with Jesus, then there might be consequences. Who knows? Like she might say this to somebody. He might get arrested. Who knows what's going to happen? Maybe this has happened to you. Uh, Maybe it happened to you over the holidays where... You found yourself in a situation or in a conversation with some of your family or friends that you were with and you weren't even anticipating it and then just like all of a sudden there was this opportunity for you to profess Christ. Maybe, maybe um, it became blatantly obvious that your beliefs or that your values are different. There was an opportunity for you to really stand for Jesus and identify with him and share the gospel there. But if you got into the conversation about Christ, you didn't know where that was going to go, what was going to happen, who was gonna think, what people were going to think. And, or, or maybe this has happened to you while you're at work and you've had to try to uh, explain why uh, you're not really comfortable talking bad about your boss or, or lying for a sick day or, or uh, taking a shortcut and, and, and there's some tension there because you're not following along with everybody else and what they're doing and, and, and you're kind of caught in that sense of like, I don't, do, do I really want to say something? Do I want to come out there? Or, or, or maybe it's your friends and you're trying to explain to your friends why uh, your small group night is always booked every week or, or, or why you're not doing the same things with them on the weekends all the time. Or, or, or maybe you're just talking with an unbeliever and you get this, you get this perfect moment to be a bold witness. Honestly, this is a golden opportunity for Peter. Peter's been thumping his chest in the locker room before this. He's like so ready. Remember back back when Jesus was saying, uh, you're going to deny me. He's like, there's no way. I'm ready to make a stand. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Coach, I'm ready. Put me in the game. I want to get after this. 
And here he is. And instead of coming out and making a stand for Christ, he denies it. Big bad Peter is bested by a girl. In the heat of the moment, he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And he tried to get away into the gateway so he could slip into the shadows and hide just in case the girl starts talking. But look at the end of verse 68. In that moment, Mark says, the rooster crowed. It's like sunrise at the farm, right? This, this is actually the first time. This was, was like an alarm for Peter. Ah, 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 ah. Peter, wake up! Do you see what's happening here? And Jesus has already told him. He told him ahead of time, stay awake at the end of chapter 13. And he has failed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane by instead of praying, what's he doing? He's asleep. Jesus keeps coming to him. Are you still sleeping? God, wake up. Do you see what's happening in this moment? But, 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 but instead of responding, uh, you know, like that, that this is kind of like uh, you when you hit the snooze, right? Maybe you have to get a new phone because you chucked yours across the room because your alarm went off in the morning. You don't want to deal with this. I don't want to get up. I hate mornings. I don't want to, don't want to listen. And, and Peter just tunes it out, denies again. And even the third time he comes back and denies. And this time, uh, by the third time, the text says that he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. That doesn't mean like he was cussing. It means like he was uh, kind of like he was swearing under oath that he was telling the truth, even though he knew he wasn't. And notice he says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He doesn't even use Jesus' name now. He's just trying to distance himself from him. So he had the choice to be a bold, faithful witness for Jesus. But if he did that, he'd have to risk the consequences of persecution. And in the end, Peter says he's not worth it. Before we go dumping on Peter, because we do that a lot, um, I had to think about my life. I'm going to be honest with you. There have been a lot of times that I've done the same thing, right? I was thinking about all the times where I've had a perfect moment. I had a perfect opportunity to get into a conversation and really make a stand for Christ and share the gospel with somebody, whether it was times where I've been sitting on an airplane with somebody who's, I mean, they're strapped in for like two hours. Like, we have an opportunity, right? And I just go back to my phone or get out a book and opportunities at Starbucks where somebody's there and I could jump in and have a conversation to just avoid it because I don't want to bother them. Or knowing that God has put me in my neighborhood for a reason, but I end up filling up my schedule so full that I don't have time to go and, and really talk to my neighbors and build relationships with them and, and, and try to convince myself that, that they're not really interested anyway and so it's okay or, or that I'll, I'll, I'll get around to it eventually. Listen, th- these, are, these are my opportunities to live sent right here, right now. There's times I've failed miserably at that. What are, what are yours? What are your opportunities to live sent right here, right now, where God has you? Maybe you're thinking about that and you kind of realize that you've failed already at some of those too, huh? I don't think I'm the only one, right? So maybe instead of um, a moment where you could have stepped up, you just decided to lay low. 
during the conversation at work. And man, they needed it. There's a perfect moment for you to step in there and share the love and the gospel of Christ. Or maybe you've been avoiding that conversation with a friend of yours that you know, man, they need you to love them enough to tell them what's going on. Tell them truth. Share with them hope. But you're not sure, like, what, what that's going to do for the friendship and what they're going to say, what they're going to think, and you don't want to mess things up, and so you just kind of avoid those kind of subjects with them. Maybe God's been pressing on you. You just feel like you're kind of ignoring uh, conviction and putting it off, making excuses. Maybe, maybe worse, you've, you've, you've suppressed the conviction so many times that, that, that now you don't even think about it. You're surrounded by all sorts of opportunities, and you don't even see it. So I think we're all like Peter, aren't we? We all fail to be faithful witnesses. You know what happens when we fail at this? Verse 72 says, as soon as the rooster crowed, he remembered what Jesus said, and he broke down and wept. What happens when we disobey? We experience brokenness and shame. You can probably think there's probably moments right now that you can think about that you wish that you could have back. Opportunities that we didn't take, and you just feel that sense of kind of shame and guilt when, 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 when God was prompting you, and instead you just decided, I, I don't want to do that. I know I should, but I, I'm not going to do it right now. I don't know about you, but I don't want 2019 to be the year that we fail as a church to live sent right where God has us and the opportunities that he's going to give us. So what do we do? What, what, what do we do now? I think there's two things that we can learn from Peter, okay? Two lessons that I think we need to take to heart. One's this. We need to remember that we are weak too. I think that's why we needed to wait, on, wait for the Lord. Remember, Mark 14 has made it really clear that Peter's failure actually started long before with his overconfidence in himself. So by the time he got to the garden, he didn't think he really needed to pray. Even though Jesus was warning him, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think it would be a failure for us if we just try to do this on our own and trust in our own resolve. I think where we need to start is on our knees. We need to start praying about the, the people and the opportunities that God is going to give you this year. Ask God to give you the courage and the strength that you don't have on your own to be a faithful witness, even in the face of persecution, even not knowing what it might cost you. And if there have been moments where you've failed at this, we just confess that. And because he is who he says he is, he's the faithful witness to who he says he is. We know that we can be Forgiven, right? Which is the second lesson we learned from Peter. I think we need to just let, let grace motivate us. Grace has got to be the motivation. Mark is actually going to leave Peter right here in all of his misery, and he's not going to pick up with him again until uh, chapter 16. But we know this isn't the end of Peter's story, is it? Peter's story is a story of grace. That even though he failed, and he failed miserably, he failed big time, 
He was forgiven by God, and God used him powerfully. You know what I find cool? We pick up with Peter in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 4, do you know who Peter's standing in front of? Acts 4 tells us that Peter is standing before Caiaphas and the religious leaders. But this time, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he starts to proclaim the name of Jesus with with boldness. That's what God can do. And it's grace that he would use any of us to be a faithful witness, even in the face of persecution. Because I don't know what this year is going to look like for you. I don't know the opportunities, but I do know this. God is sending you out. And as we go, what we want to do is look to Jesus. He's the example. He's the example we want to follow. And even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, Paul says, for he cannot deny himself. Jesus is our example of a faithful witness. I'm praying that this year God's going to make us more like him. Amen? Lord, I pray that you would do this work in us. We want to get after it this year and the opportunities that you're going to give us to stand before friends, family, co-workers, neighbors. There are people that need to hear the hope of the gospel. And I pray that you would give us courage and strength that we don't have on our own. And Lord, you might need to remind us that. That we can't do this in our own power, and our own resolve. That's not going to accomplish anything. So I think it's awesome that we get to start this year together on our knees, reminding one another how much we need you. We're waiting for you. We know that if anything good is going to happen this year, it's going to be because you're in it. And so we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you would still use us even when we failed, even when we messed up, we missed these opportunities. We can still be faithful witnesses. That's grace. Thank you for that. I pray that you would give us the courage, give us the strength, and Lord, give us opportunities. Let us see the people that we have influence over and the moments where we can step in and boldly proclaim the name of Christ. And I pray that in all of it, you get the glory because you are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.